0: Of the Jesus Seminar. Okay, it's, it's it's kind of hard not to hear about them uh, lately because they receive so much media attention. And uh, and as we're going to see, it's 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 rather uh, it's rather unfortunate that they receive so much attention because they do not represent uh, New Testament scholarship as a whole. Um, let alone the the true uh, traditional uh, uh, view of the scriptures and of Jesus. Um, If you want to jot down, I didn't put it on the handouts, if you want to jot down some books that you could do some further reading on this, um, my uh, apologetic professor at Liberty University has a really good uh, book entitled The Historical Jesus. The Historical Jesus... And uh, he's got a heavy Detroit accent, so he yeah. I he called him up once, and we were talking on the phone, and just a couple of years ago, and I said, "Hey, Doc, I got your new book. It just it just came out." And he said, "Well, what the stroke of Jesus?" Uh, stroke of Jesus. Said, Who left liberty, he must have lost it or something. And uh, and uh, I said, no, no, that sounds that sounds real good. I'll have to pick that up. And I was thinking, this is weird. He said, what would you get? I said, the historical Jesus. And he said, oh, yeah, that's what I said, the stroke of Jesus. So, <laughs> so if, you, if you want to buy a Gary Habermas' book, come, come talk to me. And uh, I'll... Uh, I'll translate for, <laughs> it, for you. But, but it is worth the historical Jesus. I only got one chapter on the Jesus Seminar, but the whole book provides good, solid historical evidence uh, to show that the Jesus of the Bible is one and the same with the Jesus of history. There isn't a fairy tale Jesus of the Bible and then the true Jesus of history who really didn't do anything supernatural, which is what the Jesus Seminar uh, claims um uh another good book is uh, uh jesus under fire now, now that book it tends to be uh, a little complex it was edited by jp moreland out of talbot and, uh, and a gentleman named wilkins i remember i remember his last name wilkins out of talbot um and uh, uh some of the leading evangelical scholars that have dealt with the issue of uh, contribute chapters but the whole book is devoted to refuting the work of the Jesus Seminar. In fact, it, it made enough of an impact to where William Lane Craig um, was actually interviewed on uh, Crossfire and went at it with one of the uh, members of the Jesus Seminar um, and, uh, and has since now that they've even published a uh, a book on a uh, debate that he did with uh, John Dominic Crossan of the uh, Jesus Seminar. And so uh, so I would say those two books are a good place to start. The work of Josh McDowell, his historical evidence, is uh, uh, he really breaks it down uh, for the Christian layperson and that really does a good job. And those arguments uh, that he uses still hold water today. At the same time, there might be a few newer. Twists that are needed um, because some of the argumentation is drifted off. So, um, what you might want to do is, you know, as you look at these books, look at the, the copyright date you know, The two that I mentioned are like, you know, between uh, you know 1998 and the year 2000. So they're they're fairly uh, recent works, and so they you know they know the latest arguments of the uh, members of Jesus Seminar, and they've. Uh, Uh, dealt with them. Um, Jesus Seminar, first I want to talk about what it is, and then I want to talk about what's wrong with it. So first, what exactly is uh, the Jesus Seminar? Now, the Jesus Seminar, first, it's a group of New Testament scholars that began to meet in 1985. Um, The word scholar, okay, Uh, Scholar can mean almost anything. Scholar just means really a student, okay? But we use the word scholar today in the sense that a a student of a particular subject has become such an expert in the subject that the experts refer to this expert, okay? So uh, kind of the guys who write the textbooks or the guys who who the textbook writers quote would be considered scholars I mean the experts among the experts Okay, um, and uh, using that definition about half of the guys in the Jesus Seminar are scholars and the, the rest really their uh, scholarship has never been established they, they really haven't published in their field um, they haven't uh, um, engaged in, in, in any uh, major sense to have their scholarship widely accepted but for lack of a better term, we we'll just call them all scholars. We we'll say a group of New Testament scholars began to meet in 1985, and they received much media attention. Okay, that's the key. Um, what these guys are doing is really no big deal if it were not for the media attention they were receiving. Um, among New Testament scholars throughout the world, uh, these guys are not really held in high esteem. At least their views are not held in high esteem. But because they've received so much media attention, um, the guy on the street thinks that what these guys are saying is, is uh, you know, infallible and that uh, they speak for New Testament scholarship when in actuality they're a very radical branch, branch uh, uh, radical far left offshoot of uh, New Testament scholarship, New Testament studies today Um, three of the uh, probably biggest names among the Jesus uh, Seminar uh, scholars are John Dominic Crossan, Robert uh, Funk, and Marcus Borg Um, and already like I said uh, William Lane Craig has debated Crossan and uh, Borg uh, debated N.T. Wright in um, book form, and that's, he's a scholar out of Great Britain. I'll talk more about European scholarship in a few moments. Originally, they had 200 members. Now they're down to about 74. I, 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 I can't honestly say I don't know why they dropped the numbers. My guess is though that the guys that dropped out, maybe there might have been a few that said, "Hey, these guys are too radical for me." But for the most part, they handpicked the guys before they began to be. So I think that the reason why so many of them dropped out is they got you know, bored with it. It wore them down. You know, meeting periodically for 15 years. Okay, so so originally they had 200 members. Now they're down to about 74. They decided they were going to vote on which sayings of Jesus found in the Gospels were authentic. Okay, so so right off the bat, it's pretty obvious that they're not going to uh, invite evangelical scholars sit at the table, because they're going to say, well, we know how this guy's going to vote. And they're assuming uh, right from the start that the Jesus of the New Testament, the Jesus of the Gospels, is not one and the same with the Jesus of history. And so they're basically hand-picking people uh, who agree with them. Uh, But they decided they were going to vote on which sayings of Jesus were authentic. And so now, you know, through majority vote, we're going to decide... Uh, history, okay? Um, uh, they also, they considered the Gospel of Thomas on the same level as the four Gospels. Has anybody here heard of the Gospel of Thomas? Okay? The problem is, Thomas didn't write it. It's classified as pseudepigrapha, which basically means false writing, too. So That's when a guy writes something and lies about his name, pretends to be somebody who, who hold the position of authority in the church, and uh, and so this guy pretended to be the apostle Thomas and wrote this work. Uh, probably dates between 140 and 170 AD. That's about as far back as you can get it. It's a Gnostic writing. Uh, the Gnostics, Gnost- Gnosticism comes from the Greek word "gnosis" for knowledge. The, the Gnostics kind of. They perverted the teachings of Paul and the teachings of John, and they brought in some Greek philosophy and came up with their own religion that you had to be initiated and, and, and attain to some higher knowledge. And if you attain to this higher knowledge, then you're saved. If, you're, if you don't have this higher knowledge, then you're then you're lost. Okay. And uh, but it, it was really a, a perversion of. Uh, True Jesus of history. In fact, uh, in the Gospel of Thomas, uh, Jesus throws a tantrum uh, as a little baby and you know wipes out like half the town supernaturally. He turns clay pigeons into real ones, I guess because he felt like it. Um, yet you come to the Gospel of John, and there's reasons for the miracles that he has performed, so much so that Jesus refers to them as signs, and then John says very clearly. The first miracle that Jesus performed at the wedding feast of Cana. So, um, uh, so the Gospel of Thomas has not really, you know, to put it on the same level with the Gospels is a mistake. And, and uh, now, keep in mind what these guys are not doing. They're not taking this very unreliable work written by uh, a phony and raising it to the status of the four gospels. That's really not what they're doing. What they're doing right at the outset is they're taking the four gospels and lowering it down to the level of this, so so they're not really upgrading uh, the gospel of Thomas. They're just downgrading uh, the four gospels and saying, well, we, we think that the same holds for this. It's a bunch of fairy tales. You might find a kernel of truth in the four Gospels, but don't expect to find uh, too much. So they decided they're going to vote on which sayings and views were authentic, Considered the Gospel of Thomas on the same level as the four Gospels. Now they came out with their the five Gospels, their color coded work, five Gospels in uh, 1993. Um, words in red. Were things that Jesus that they voted on, and they said, "Okay, well, Jesus definitely said that." So there, those are words in red. Words in pink, Jesus probably said it. Okay. Words in gray, Jesus might have said it. You know, it's possible that he said it, but we really don't think so. And then w- w- words in black, Jesus definitely did not say it. Okay. So that was the, the, the thrust of their work. And they came out with this, the five Gospels. Now, uh, that's what the Jesus Seminar is. Now, what I want to do uh, is is to take a look at what's wrong with it, okay? And uh, all we could do is just give a brief overview of what's wrong with it. In actuality, uh, to make a case for the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts, uh, you could literally spend entire seminary-level courses. Uh, on that well, let's just take a look at uh, some of their results and then talk about how problematic those conclusions are that they draw in the Gospel of John in the Gospel of John is where Jesus is, is the most clearly presented as God incarnate uh, the Gospel of John you find no red no saying of Jesus in red you find only one pink so only one statement that Jesus probably said okay, um, and only a few great. So for the most part they have taken the Gospel of John and just thrown it into the trash can. Okay, if you want to find the Jesus of history don't, don't bother looking in the, in the Gospel of John. In fact, when you look at the four Gospels over 82% of Jesus' sayings uh, are rejected and uh, and so, so you' I mean it's like if you slice the pie into uh, five pieces, uh, less than one piece would be left uh, of all the sayings uh, that uh, that Jesus made in the gospels. Only fifteen sayings of Jesus throughout the four gospels uh, are red letter and, and they're very careful they make sure that it's things like you know, give to Caesar what a Caesar is and, and to God what is a God. Always something where Jesus doesn't claim to be God or he doesn't claim to be Savior or he doesn't claim to, to uh, be able to do miraculous works. Things of that sort. Uh, and so uh, according to them you know, supposedly Jesus never claimed to be God, Messiah or Savior. Uh, one of the main problems with this uh, it, it, is that uh, a lot of these guys are coming into uh, their, their seminars with their meetings with the conclusion the, the, the assumption the presupposition that the gospels all date to, the, to late in the first century 85, 90 to 100 AD or early second century. So, they, so basically, they're dating the Gospels maybe 75, 80 to about 125, AD. The fact of the matter is that's outdated scholarship. Those reviews that maybe some scholars held to a hundred years ago, but the weight of the evidence has forced most scholars to abandon ship on on those arguments and at least admit that the four Gospels had to be written closer. Uh, to about 70 AD and in, 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 in fact I, I think the evidence is now becoming overwhelming that we've got to push the, uh, at least three of the four gospels John may have written his gospel 85 to 90 AD but the other three gospels the evidence is overwhelming uh, that uh, they should be pushed way way back uh, in fact let me just take a minute I'll just give you my, my own views I held to these a long, long time just based on common sense but now it seems that some in both Catholic and Protestant circles and some New Testament scholars are moving in this direction. It appears to me and by the way you can go to the apostolic father, Papias, was a pupil of the Apostle John, personally knew several of the Apostles who lived from 60 AD, died around 140 AD and we have fragments of his writings left and he basically said that Matthew originally wrote his gospel in Hebrew and then later on when the gospel was spread to the Gentiles he translated it into Greek Okay, and um, we get some of the information about him from uh, uh, Irenaeus an early church father who was quoting uh, from, from Polycarp. I mean from uh, Papias um, but whatever the case it appears to me okay if I was if I was God and I decided I was going to become a man and I was going to train guys for three years I would you know I would make sure one of them's taking notes okay <laughs> now when you look at the when you look at the apostles only one of them sticks out in my mind as good, a good potential stenographer, a good potential note-taker, okay? And, and, it, and it's Matthew because out of all the original apostles, here's the tax collector. He's got to keep good records. He's got to know how to write. Um, I I believe that um, Jesus selected Matthew to take notes on his sermons. And so but basically, um, his earliest version of the gospel could have been in Hebrew, Jesus' sermons. But then after, around 42 A.D., when uh, the apostles got kicked out through the persecution out of the Palestine area and, and they had to flee, he thought, well, now I've got to bring my gospel to the Gentiles. So he translated it into Greek, but then he said, you know, these guys weren't in Jerusalem when all this stuff was coming down. Let me give the historical background these sermons. Okay, so he may have even enlarged uh, the message. Um, Karsten P. Didi, a British scholar, um, uh, talks about the fact that uh, Papias told us that Mark's gospel originally was known as Peter's gospel. Okay? Um, That when Peter was in Rome, uh, Mark was there with him and Peter told him the whole, his his whole version of the gospel. Uh, But that, when Peter departed, Mark then uh, wrote down what Peter had told him. And at first it was known as Peter's gospel, but as time went on, John Mark got such a big name in the early church that they began to call it the gospel of Mark. But they still remember, they still knew, he originally came from Peter, who was an eyewitness of these events. Um. What liberal critics do with that, they have to deal with uh, Papias' eyewitness testimony there. So what they'll usually say is, okay, so when when Peter departed, he was in Rome and then he departed, that means when Peter died, uh, after that Mark wrote the gospel. So they dated about 64 or 67 AD. But Carson P.D. challenges any liberal scholar to present any time with a Greek word there for departure, uh, any time where that word is used in ancient writings where it means anything but just literally a departure, not death, unless the context demands it. For instance, Peter in Second Peter, he talks about his departure is near, and the whole context, you can see, he's talking about he's going to die. But none of that is mentioned in Papi. All it says is Peter was in Rome, with Mark, after Peter's departure, Mark wrote Peter's gospel, the gospel that, that Peter had preached to him. Um, and so basically, um, it was about... Uh, I think Peter was in Rome, like 42 to 44 A.D., and then fled Rome, and then didn't come back until shortly before he was crucified upside down. So basically, Carson P. Thede is arguing... It's March the gospel should be dated around 44 A.D. when Peter departed Rome. That's when the uh, that's what the context calls for. Um, as far as Luke's gospel, who can tell me what the, what the sequel to, Luke's, to Luke, the uh, Luke, the gospel of Luke is? Acts. Right. They're both written to Theopolis. And uh, you read the first few verses of, of Acts, and it tells them that you know I already wrote to you about everything that Christ did while he was on earth and blah 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 now I'm going to give you the sequel okay well Acts is about Peter and about Paul so just think of yourself right now let's say you want to make a movie about Peter and Paul okay about their ministries and all the dynamic things they're doing um, are you going to end it with with uh, Paul going off into Rome and, and he's under house arrest and then the end no no I mean, if you want to make a really good movie about the ministries of Peter and Paul, um, why not include their deaths? I mean, they died for the faith. Does, does anybody know what the word martyr li- literally means? Uh, I mean, that, it means it means a witness. It has nothing, the word martyr, has nothing to do with death. It just means witness. But the most powerful witnesses given for the Lord Jesus early in church history were people who died for their faith and refused to publicly denounce Jesus. And it's just like a Tertullian said that the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. What he's saying is the more Christians get killed, the more the church grows because people see. You know, hey, if these people are, being willing, are willing to be thrown to the lions, to be torn to shreds, to be crucified, to be stoned to death, to be beheaded. If they're willing to go through all this torture, then they must really believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, he has conquered death, that he is the Savior, that he is God incarnate. And, um, um, but um, whatever the case, uh, um, a martyr means basically a, a witness. But the, the most powerful way to testify would be your death. So, with Peter and Paul, their most powerful part of their ministry, the most powerful witness they had was when they went right and door to the end and were willing to die for the faith. But why is that not included in Acts? Why did Acts just end abruptly? And really, the, the only reason for it ending so abruptly is if right where Paul is left at the close of the book of Acts, that's where Luke put his pen down and finished the book, and Paul was still alive. In other words, uh, um, a very reasonable dating of Luke's gospel would be about 61 at late latest, 62 A.D., okay? Now, that, that's the dating of Acts. So Luke was written before that, so you're talking now 58, 59, 60 A.D., Okay? Um, uh, it would make no sense whatsoever to just uh, leave out uh, their deaths there. And then um, most conservative uh, scholars would agree with liberal scholars that John's gospel wasn't written until later, until about 85 and 90 AD. So the conservative ones would say it was John who wrote it. um, And uh, the liberal scholars would would try to make it somebody else and credit it or to have it removed or whatever but whatever the case um, the present state uh, the present state of New Testament scholarship has pushed the dates back the reason why everybody wants to date the Gospels after 70 AD is because Jesus predicts the destruction of the Temple which occurred in 70 AD and so they don't want to include uh, predictive prophecies because uh, then it admits the supernatural, which is what these guys are against. Okay. Um, the fact of the matter is, Jesus also you know, made other predictions that were fulfilled. Jesus talked about the, the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the church. And he said that it would be like a little mustard seed, but then it would just grow, be the biggest tree in the garden. He basically was saying, uh, when you read his parables about the kingdom, that it was going to grow to be a worldwide phenomenon. You can even find that in the Old Testament where the the Jewish Messiah would be rejected uh, by the Jews who would receive a wide Gentile following. It would be people from all nations that would uh, you know, and and, uh, um, certainly uh, if Jesus is the Jesus that the Jesus Seminar claims that he is, you just wouldn't have this worldwide movement uh, gathered around him. Uh, But they claim that Jesus never never, ever uh, claimed he was God, Messiah, uh, or Savior. Uh, the members uh, of the Jesus Seminar are actually a splinter group. They're a, uh, a very small, radical subset of New Testament scholarship. Okay, um, They're about as far le- left as you can get uh, in their rejection uh, of, the, uh, of the Jesus uh, of the Bible. Being the Jesus of, of history, um, almost half of their seventy-four members earned their graduate degrees from either Harvard, Claremont, or Vanderbilt, which are three of the most uh, uh, liberal uh, uh, schools in the country when it comes to New Testament studies and, and biblical studies in general. Um, uh, I mean, and believe me. I mean, you go, you go anywhere. Uh, you know, you go to any school that was founded in the 1800s or 1700s, and and though they were founded as Christian schools, almost every one of them has apostasized at one point or another, but but the fact of the matter is, these are the extremist schools, and by liberal here, again, we're not talking uh, politically liberal, we're talking theologically liberal, and this is the uh, rejection uh, of the uh, uh, traditional Jesus that the, uh, churches worship. Uh, European scholars are not represented. Um, it, it, this is a weird one because European, actually, Germany usually leads the way. Okay, Germany leads the way in in thought in philosophical areas. Uh, theological areas, Germany has always led the way. Um, it was the, the German scholars, the higher critics, who first questioned whether or not Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Okay, so it was the, it was through the German thinkers that the uh, credibility of the Bible had been undermined. Uh, uh, the German ser- seminaries were the first to go liberal, which, by the way, is, as a side note, I think that that paved the way, created a vacuum, because all of a sudden the leadership in the German churches, you know, if kind of wants to become a minister, he gets trained at these seminaries that don't believe the Bible is God's word, and then they go back, and they're supposed to shepherd the flock, and they're not even believers. And, uh, and so basically, I believe, the apostasy of the German church See, the pulpit, the Bible-believing pulpit is the conscience of a nation. Once you remove uh, uh, the uh, Bible-believing pulpit from a nation, the conscience is removed and there's always uh, an Adolf Hitler waiting in the wings. But whatever the case, Europe is usually 40 to 60 years behind Germany and uh, America is usually 40 to 60 years behind Europe. Okay? And... uh, um, but it's real interesting is that uh, European scholarship has almost come full circle because the more and more that they've studied, now and you can find many German uh, scholars uh, that their picture of Jesus is looking a lot more like the picture, of the portrait of Jesus found in the New Testament. European scholarship... I mean, Let will give you an example of the real extreme... Uh, liberal views and they're outdated at one time uh, most New Testament scholars held to this view but you could not attribute anything to the real Jesus of history um, if it was something that was taught later on by the church or if it was taught before Jesus in Judaism in Jewish faith it was a presupposition that they made Now, now think about that That'd be like saying, well, the founder of, religion, of a religion had absolutely no influence on the adherents, you know, on his followers, because if, if Paul says something, then it couldn't come from Jesus automatically and made that rule. And somehow Jesus was Jewish, but he wasn't influenced one bit by the Jewish culture or the Jewish faith, even though he adhered to the Jewish faith. Um, so that's where the liberal critics began he, Jesus can't say anything that's either Jewish or Christian and in the end you end up with absolutely nothing. So as these liberal critics began to study more and more now they're moving in the direction that they're, they're finding out that Jesus was uh, Jewish throughout. Okay? So uh, European scholarship is moving back in the right direction. Okay? I wish I could say they're evangelical but, but for the most part even, uh, European scholarship is not evangelical voting. they there are in Great Britain and several other countries uh, um, some scholars who would be classified uh, as evangelical, and then uh, basically uh, acknowledging uh, that Jesus is, is God incarnate and Savior. But uh, but for the most part, they are moving in the right direction. They were not represented. Okay, they weren't basically they weren't radical enough for the Jesus Seminar. Um, also, Evangelical scholars are not represented. I'm a member of the Evangelical Theological Society. I'm not a New Testament uh, scholar. Uh, at the same time, I was schooled by several New Testament scholars. Uh, none of those New Testament scholars were asked to to be present. There are New Testament scholars uh, all over this country uh, or Evangelical who were not asked to attend the uh, Jesus Seminar. So, so but basically what it amounts to it'd be like uh, um, let's say that, that of all the Iwana leaders in this room we're the only ones who believe the earth is flat everybody else disagrees with us so we decide to have our own seminar guess what our conclusion is going to be and we get to vote we're going to end up voting that what the world is flat and now, the difference between us and the Jesus Seminar would be that we're not going to get the media that the Jesus Seminar is getting. But basically, um, that's what I'm getting. The Jesus Seminar is so radical in their views, uh, it's only the fact that they get all this media and they're telling people what they want to hear that makes it sound like, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're on the cutting edge. By the way, Peter Jennings recently did a uh, special about the search for the historical Jesus um, over 60% of the uh, quote-unquote scholars that he interviewed were members of the Jesus seminar um, Just about any time you watch either unsolved mysteries or CNN or whatever whenever they want to talk to a scholar he's almost always somebody who's a big gun within the Jesus seminar okay and, and by the way they're they're watering Jesus down to the point that it, it makes him uh, it's, it, it becomes a wimp Jesus that fits very well, fits very well with New Age type thinking. And uh, um, uh, whatever the case, uh, forty of the seventy-four remaining members are relative unknowns. They're not really published in their field in scholarly journals, and uh, so their scholarship really hasn't been uh, acknowledged. Um, underlying all of this is a bias against the supernatural. Okay what these guys are saying is that um, they see everything that everything that occurs, everything that happens happens within a box a box of natural causes any event that occurs there has to be a natural explanation for it outside the box supernatural causes are automatically eliminated before they even investigate it okay so it's not like these guys have studied the Bible and studied archaeology and studied science and studied history and then concluded miracles don't happen they walk they walk into this discussion they walk into their meetings with the presupposition that miracles cannot and do not happen okay so automatically Jesus you know uh, was not a miracle work and they don't want to call Jesus insane so, so automatically since God could not become a man you know, some of these guys aren't even sure if God exists uh, they're not going to want to badmouth Jesus to the point where they say he's a lunatic or a liar so they're not going to acknowledge that he claimed to be God, Messiah or Savior so they have a tremendous bias against the supernatural It's a, bi- a bias is something a belief you hold to that you base other beliefs upon but It's a belief that you hold to without evidence. It's a belief that you hold to before you examine the evidence. Okay? Um, okay, uh, they, also, they assume that the Gospels are false until proven true. This violates Aristotle's uh, dictum. Aristotle's dictum basically argues that whenever you read a document, it should be considered true, until you find evidence that it is false. It's kind of like in our legal system, you're innocent until proven guilty. That's the way you're supposed to study documents. Uh, These guys have the assumption that the Gospels are false until proven true. In fact, that that has always been the liberal liberal critics' assumption. Um, The Hittites didn't exist until we found something outside the Bible that confirmed, oh yeah, they did exist. Okay a so 100 years ago they said, okay, alright, the Hittites, Hittites did exist, but they weren't this big advanced warrior, advanced civilization that the Bible says they were. And until the archaeologist dug further find found out, oh, okay, yeah, they were, okay. So, you know, and then he gets to the point to find the Hittite legal code and you find if they had all these advanced laws because liberal critics used to believe basically it was almost a bunch of neanderthals Um uh, you go back uh, to the time of Abraham and, and, and guys were just barely coming out of the cave as far as they were concerned and were too primitive. And, uh, they used to argue, uh, liberal critics used to argue that the first five books of the Bible could not have been written by Moses because writing wasn't, was very, very rare back then. And now we have documents that date back to 3000 B.C., 1,500 years before Moses wrote the first five books. Uh, uh, and from Egypt, uh, and, and and the writing was just uh, business transactions. So it was. I mean, if you're if you're already writing for business transactions, then you've probably been doing academic type writing uh, longer than that. Um, but whatever the case, uh, the assumption that the gospel are false until proven true. I mean, I mean, in 1961, we found a, a pillar with uh, Pontius, the, the inscription of Pontius Pilate's name on it and the date of his reign which, you know, when you bring it into our B.C. A.D. dating comes out to 26 uh, to 36 A.D. And, uh, but, um, and so, so basically they accept nothing from the Bible unless they can find evidence for it somewhere else whereas with all, every other ancient document, it's a double standard. They use Aristotle's system. It's, it's true until proven false. And, uh, 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 they also believe in a non-supernatural, original manuscript which no one has ever seen, usually called Q. And, and by the way, you don't have to be a member of the Jesus Seminar to believe in Q. Most New Testament scholars believe in Q. Uh, most evangelical scholars don't. But uh, uh, but uh, whatever is there for Q. There, there is we've never seen a copy of Q. We, we, we've seen twenty six thousand copies of the of the ancient copies of the New Testament. We've never seen a copy of Q. We've never seen the original Q. Of course, we haven't, we haven't we don't have the originals of the New Testament either. But we've never seen you know I mean. Where is the evidence for Q? Q is, is basically it, it, it's the, the product uh, of the speculation of liberal critics who want a totally non-supernatural Jesus. okay? So they assumed that originally, there were just the sayings of this non-supernatural Jesus it's kind of like a philosopher kind of guy, some type of guru, okay? and eventually his followers started uh, exaggerating his claims and his teachings and then turned him into this miracle working God, I'll I'll say two things number one, there's there's absolutely no evidence um, for this document other than this Uh, there may be an ancient Hebrew writing that contained only Jesus's sayings and none of the things that he did. I am open to that possibility, but so that takes us back to square one. That would those would be the sermon notes taken by stenographer uh, Matthew, the tax collector. So, I'm, so there might be something to this, but it would not uh, it would not prove the case. But whatever the case, when well, you have all the manuscript evidence for the New Testament. You don't have any real evidence for Q other than the fact you like all you want all supernatural elements removed from the Bible. what, what is the firm foundation to build upon? It's upon where, where the manuscript evidence points, and that points to what we have in our Gospels uh, today. Uh, also, the Gospel of Thomas. We talked about this. It's a highly suspect, heretical, <laughs> Gnostic document. The Earliest it could be dated is about 140 AD. That's when the uh, the last pupils of the apostles who were leading the church were getting elderly and uh, Poly, Polycarp, the pupil of the apostle John died 16 years later and so now you have these heretics see, see when, can anybody tell me when the first heretics when the gospel started being preached how long did it take before there were heretics showing up on the scene perverting Christianity? Right, right in the beginning I mean, look at the book of Colossians book of Colossians I mean these guys are all messed up under Christianity Paul's got to tell them that Jesus is superior to the angels stop worshiping angels Um, stop putting yourself back under the Old Testament law I mean these guys took a little bit of everything he just threw it all together Um, that you're complete in Christ you don't need Jesus plus the Old Testament law um, plus angel worship plus all these other things we say book of Galatians they were the Judaizers, the legalizers. They they said, yeah, you could be saved by Jesus, but it's Jesus plus the law. So first you've got to become a Jew, get circumcised, obey the law, and then accept Jesus, and then you could be saved. And uh, you know, Paul said that's a different gospel. That's not the gospel that we preach. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And so the heresies began right away. When you got heavyweights like Paul, and the Apostle John and the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Jude. I mean, we have got these guys shooting down these heresies, uh, you know, they're going to be short-lived. You know, it's going to be pretty obvious to the church as a whole, hey, the big kahunas have spoken and um, these other guys are out for lunch. Um, but after the apostles died, then it was the apostolic fathers. The pupils of the apostles whom the apostles appointed to lead the early church, and so then people would say, "Well, I heard this new teaching out there," and someone would say, well, "Wait a minute, uh, Polycarp said that that's not what John meant, and he was John's personal pupil, and then John appointed him to lead in the early church." Um, so you had that kind of way. When the when the apostolic fathers died, each generation it made it easier for heresy to sound a little bit more authoritative. And, and that's what the, the Gospel of Thomas is. Highly suspect document. In fact, uh, Jesus was more... I would, I would go so far as to say that Jesus was not really uh, uh, the miracle worker that we find in our Bibles today so much as he was a magician. Uh, more of uh, More like uh, some, uh, some guru, some Eastern guru and the true Jesus of the Bible. Um, And finally, the strongest evidence against what the Jesus seminar is saying is the evidence for the reliability of the four Gospels. The evidence for the reliability of the four Gospels, it's overwhelming. Um, If you take the New Testament as a whole, okay, the New Testament is by far the most reliable of all, all of ancient literature. The only reason why why people will question whether or not John really wrote John 14, 6, and if Jesus really said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. The only reason why that stuff is questioned is because there's a double standard. Once again, it's a double standard. Well, we don't have the originals, so we don't know what Jesus really said. But the fact of the matter is, we don't have the originals from anything from ancient literature. I mean, if we're talking anything written before 400 B.C. We don't have the originals for anything. Okay. Now, when you when you look at the manuscript evidence, what you find with the New Testament manuscripts, there are more manuscript copies. You know, how, how many how many history professors today question Plato's writings? Nobody questions the reliability of Plato's writings. But that's all based upon seven copies. With the New Testament, uh, we have over 26,000 ancient copies, 5,000 of them in the original Greek. Okay. Um, uh, Plato's seven copies were written 1,200 years after Plato uh, supposedly wrote his works. Yet really, this, and I, I agree with these scholars for accepting Plato's writings, this really... Even though that's not the greatest evidence in the world, there's no reason to believe that uh, that's not what he wrote. With the New Testament, we have a gap as small as 25 years